of tonight's message is, He lifts up my head. He lifts up my head. As I was thinking about that, I was contemplating or considering all of the different postures or body positions that we have where our bodies actually speak to our internal state of being. You see, your external body posture often signals your present internal emotional state. And most people are rather transparent about how they are feeling without even regard to what they are saying. We say that nonverbal communication is roughly 90% of human communication, and that's because the human body is so expressive. And so the way that we have our face, the way that we have our posture, those types of things communicate volumes about what we're thinking and how we're feeling. There's lots of examples of that, but you could often, this idea that we communicate a lot of things through our body posturing is communicated well through this saying that says, you're wearing your emotions on your sleeve. And the idea behind that is that it's obvious to anybody looking at you what you might be thinking or feeling based on just your body posture. One example, obviously, you could think of defiance. It's not that hard to see defiance in a person's persona, the way they're carrying themselves, the way they're holding their body, the way their facial features are structured. And especially that's true when it comes to young ones. It's not hard at all. You just look at their face. You look at their arms crossed. You look at their eyebrows. You look at the way their lips are pursed. And you can tell this is not a child who's ready to comply right now. And the same could be true about happiness. Kids don't hide happiness very well. Adults generally don't hide their happiness. It's something that you can see by just looking at them. Same could be true, though, about sadness. could be said about Fear, it could be said when we talk about a hanging head, if that's what we're going to narrow in on, that's usually a signal of something that, that negative emotions. And like I say, it could be fear, a hanging head could be fear, fatigue, sadness, worry, anxiety, shame, embarrassment. A lot of times a kid will, who is embarrassed by something they've done will hang their head not wanting to face, have make eye contact with those around them. Guilt, same kind of a thing. Or even being overwhelmed. Very often a, a head that's hanging down is, is a defeated look. It's, it's expressing an emotion of being worn out, overwhelmed, and defeated. And there's, again, many other things that could be expressed by a hanging head, but those are the most common, and they're all negative, really. And these emotions result from difficult trials, challenges, and circumstances in life. So you think about why are you feeling fear, fatigue, sadness, worry, anxiety, shame, embarrassment, guilt, or, or being overwhelmed? Well, it's generally because of the difficulty of life, the challenges that you're facing, the trials that you're facing, the circumstances that have come your way. And so as you think about those emotions and how they could lead to a head that is hanging, you think about David and some of the things that he faced in his life. We're doing a series here on insights from the Psalms. And so naturally David, who was the author of many of the Psalms, he comes up and we, as he's going through different circumstances in his life, he puts that to paper as he writes poetry and he comes up with or expresses himself through language, through writing. And so David faced several incredibly difficult trials in his life. You could say that none of them are, this is, you could argue this anyway, that none of them are greater 
than having his own son try to overthrow and kill him. And so as we come to Psalm 3 here tonight, again, we're not necessarily going to go through every one of them, but we are, we so far have covered part of Psalm 1, all of Psalm 2, part of Psalm 3 here tonight. And as we come to that, we see David acknowledge that his natural emotional response to having his own son seek his life was to feel overwhelmed. We see David acknowledge that he felt defeated, downtrodden, distressed, and he felt desperation as he was faced with this particularly troubling and hard circumstance in his life of Absalom wanting to kill him. So what was the result of all that? The result of that was a hanging head. And we know that because David talks about how the Lord is ultimately the one who lifts up his head. Now, he couldn't write about the Lord doing that if that wasn't his posture. If that, has, if that wasn't the way his emotional response to this trial was being expressed, is that he had his head hanging. And we can relate to that. Even as you sit here tonight, perhaps that's the posture or the emotional state that you're in, where you're, fatig- you're fatigued, you're distressed, you're downtrodden, you're defeated, you're desperate, and you're body posturing shows that. And if that's the case, you're really going to love this psalm tonight because David talks about when I find myself or we find ourselves in that kind of a circumstance, the solution to that is the one who can heal those things, who can mend those things, who can lift up the broken heart. And by lifting up the broken heart, he can lift up the downtrodden head or the hanging head. So in these circumstances that David was facing, he recognized his need to turn to the Lord in dependence. The Lord then provided the needed encouragement, comfort, protection, and provision for David. So the Lord took David's hanging head and he lifted it up. And if you take nothing else away from this psalm, have that be the summary that you remember. David was in a place where he needed encouragement. He needed comfort, protection, and provision because he was facing circumstances in life that had caused him to be downtrodden. He saw that the solution to that was the Lord and that ultimately the Lord was the one who was capable of lifting up his hanging head. So let's look at this psalm a little bit closer here tonight, Psalm 3. Let's just start by reading it. Lord, David says, how they have increased who trouble me! Exclamation point. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. That's where we get our title. Verse 4, I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. So let's dig in. Verse 1. I have this section titled, Sometimes life is just plain hard. Sometimes life is just plain hard. You know, we go through life sometimes with an expectation that as God's children, that means he spares us from all of the difficult circumstances and trials and tribulations that man naturally faces as a result of living in a sin-cursed world with a sin nature that's constantly under the attack by Satan himself, the evil one. Well, that's not the life that God has told us 
we should be expecting. He never promised that at all. He said, in fact, in this life, you will have trials. But you could be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. Because you're in me and I'm in you. We're speaking now in the church age, the age of grace. God says, there's nothing about those trials and circumstances that you should be surprised by. That's a natural part of existing in this temporal realm. But you can be of good cheer in the face of those hard things because I'm going to use them for your good and my glory if you'll keep my, your eyes on me. Same, same exact principle. It's a transdispensational principle in that sense that God has always said that to mankind. As he's brought about or allowed hard things and difficult things to come up in people's lives, people of, men and women of faith's lives, from the very beginning to the very end, he's allowed that to happen. And each time that's happened, he's given man a choice. Are you going to respond in faith or are you going to react in your flesh? Are you going to trust me or are you going to lean on your own understanding? Are you going to go vertical with your thinking or are you going to stay horizontal with your focus and your perspective? Are you going to continue to face this hardship in independence? Trying to do it on your own? Or are you going to turn in dependence to me and allow me to carry you through this trial? And that's how it's been since the fall of man. That man has been faced with many of those different trials and hardships and circumstances and been each time been given that choice. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But sometimes life is just plain hard. There's no way around it. The adversaries, David says, are many. And you see that in verse 1 here with these phrases. How they have increased who trouble me. Meaning it's not getting better, it's getting worse. They've increased. It's not just the normal trials and tribulations and hardships of life, but this is an exaggerated or increased and amplified level of distress that I'm now facing. You see the phrase, many are they who rise up against me. This isn't constrained or it isn't limited to just one particular trial, one particular hardship, one particular adversary. No, the man of faith, the woman of faith, has been and continued and will forever be faced with a lot of different enemies, a lot of different adversaries. And we, at times, summarize them with the world, the flesh, and the devil, but the world itself is filled with many, many people. And so there's many, many different attacks coming from many, many different directions. And we think about the devil, he's not confined to one one devil, we have one leader devil in the sense that Satan is ultimately number one opposition or the number one enemy of God, but we wrestle against, we'll get to it in a second, but we wrestle against spiritual, we have a spiritual forces that are waging against, are raging against us. There's many demonic aspects to Satan's attack, not just, not just one. And so we see some of that in terms of this numerical side of it. We just have been got through this in the last two weeks here in Second John, where verse 7 says, for many, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. Now, each one of them is a deceiver and an antichrist, but you see there's many of them. There are many who rise up against me. Ephesians 6.12 says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's primarily a spiritual battle, primarily with a spiritual enemy a supernatural enemy. We, re- we wrestle against principalities, plural, 
against powers, plural, against the rulers, plural, of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts, plural, of wickedness in heavenly places. Our battle is against unseen spiritual enemies, primarily, first and foremost. Now, that battle impacts people, so thus there are people that add to the conflict, the trial, the circumstances we face. Yes, we do have a battle against me, against me, as the part of me that is receptive to the influence of sin, the sin nature inside of me, is waging war against me as well, is in conflict with the leading and the direction and the influence of the Spirit of God. And that spiritual battle is internal as well, but it's external too. The world itself, of course, the thinking of the world, the things of the world, all propagated by the deceiver himself, Satan, that is on attack against me as well. The, the point to take away is that the adversaries are many. In this instance, he has a primary adversary in mind. It's not a theoretical thing. There's a very real adversary who is rising up against David. He has attracted many false followers to go with him in the sense that Absalom, when he revolted against David, he didn't do it alone. He did it with a lot of the nation of Israel following after him in that revolution or uprising against King David. Now, Absalom spent years setting them up to follow him. It wasn't something that he confused the Israelites in a short period of time. He was very methodical about this. Now, some of you might recall the story. Where he came, he was finally allowed back into town by David after he had been banished for a period of time for murdering his brother in the whole Tamar debacle. But he comes back to town, is finally received by David. He doesn't come back with a heart that wants to arrange himself under his father's leadership, also his, both his father and the leader of the nation of Israel. He has a heart of deception, a heart of rebellion, a heart of revolution. And so he seeks to undermine David, and he does it by sitting in the gates of the city. As people come in with conflicts, he makes it seem as though King David is not willing to hear their disputes. He, he, he subverts what King David is doing by establishing himself. He lifts himself up and exalts himself with silly things like having a whole bunch of people run out in front of his horse everywhere he travels somewhere, having an entourage. That's what we would think about in this day. He expressed his pride and his arrogance in many different ways, but people are gullible. People are susceptible to being deceived. And Satan isn't content to go to hell by himself. He is interested, of course, in bringing as many people with him as he can. So the spiritual battle is for the souls of men as Satan seeks to attract as many followers as possible to take them down with him. Misery likes company, is the way we say it. And so that was true of Absalom. So it wasn't just one enemy, but it originates with his own son. Now, it originally, in some ways, was brought about by David's own behavior as he was told that would be the consequence of his own decisions, his own sin. That there are consequences associated with choosing to reject God, to do our own things, to rebel against God. And this was how it played out with the rebellion of his son, which you know the story, it ends, it ends with his son being killed. So David lost, to, due to violence, several of his sons. 
but this was one, Absalom. So it's not theoretical. You want to read more about it? You can read 2 Samuel 15 through 18 to read about this present trial that David is actually talking about here. It's more than just a theoretical thing, though. But I wanted to talk, start off with just this idea that there are natural difficulties, trials, circumstances. There are those that are rising up against you. There are adversaries that the Christian is facing, that the man of God is facing. And that's nothing unique to David. And it's nothing unique to his time. It's something that you and I deal with in our day too. There's a very direct application to our lives. Now the second verse here I have labeled man is naturally skeptical instead of trusting. Natural, man is naturally skeptical, not trusting of God in the context here. Verse 2, many are they, now we're sticking with many, this is common, many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. So you have that repetition there where, again, it's not an isolated circumstance where man is skeptical of God's goodness, where man undermines God's ability and capability and faithfulness to undertake in our lives. The flesh is doing that internally, trying to convince us that God can't be trusted, that God's not reliable. Tries to distract us so that we forget about God's past faithfulness, so that we will reject God, turn from God, exclude God from the way we deal with the present trial in front of us, which is just ridiculous because the only way we ever would have had any success in facing any adversity or trial in our life is because we turn in faith to the Lord and let Him carry us through that. If we would, would think and reflect just a little bit about God's past dealings with us, we would continue to walk and operate and have a faith-rest life. But, O oh ye of little faith, we're so quick, we're so fickle, we forget so easily. You talk about the danger of forgetting. That's the danger of forgetting is we forget God's goodness and his past care and provision for us and we are prone to be a part of this many who become skeptics in a time of need and in fact doubt whether God can actually help or undertake. And what was their message? Their message was there is no help for him in God. Imagine that being the counsel of those that are nearby you. You're facing one of the hardest trials of your life, and imagine somebody coming alongside of you and saying, there's no help from God in this. This is too big for him. There's no hope. Though you're, in the past, God has shown himself to be capable of handling anything, this is too big for him. You might as well give up. You might as well continue, continue to hang your head in despair. How many times have you, despite knowing, if you really thought about it, despite knowing that there's no such thing as hopeless when it comes to God, how many times have you gone back to that pit of despair? God having time, time and time again in the past showing you that with him there's nothing impossible, that you could do all things through Christ who strengthens you, that grace would abound. That his strength would be made perfect through your weakness. How many times has he showed that to you? But yet they come along, the deceiver comes along, the, dece the ones that are thinking like that come along, 
in those moments. Sometimes it's a voice from within, from the sin nature. Sometimes it's a voice from without by those around us who are whispering in our ears. And they're saying, God can't handle this. Well, that's what David was up against, that natural skepticism of mankind. You see, this statement represents mankind's natural mindset of rebellion and rejection of God. Rebellion against God and rejection of God. Now, you can see that kind of mentality that the Bible says. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Romans one twenty eight is speaking of those who have rejected God in terms of they haven't even accepted, accepted the person and work of His Son. They've rejected God where they won't trust Him to deal with their sinfulness, to make a way of rescue for, for them despite from their alienation from him and their estrangement from him, that God would make a way for man to be reconciled to himself through the substitution of an innocent on behalf of the guilty, that God would have a way of saving mankind. They don't accept that either. So Romans one twenty eight speaks of that person who's, who's never put their faith in God's provision to deal with their sinfulness. It says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge... Meaning they did not acknowledge God. God then gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. But the reaction or the response to God's truth was to say, I will not acknowledge God. Now, though that's speaking of unbelievers, isn't it true that that can describe men and women of faith too when they're not walking as influenced or directed by the Spirit of God? When they're not walking and trusting God? to direct in their thinking, to remind them of his truth? Because you have to ask yourself in this passage, who were the many who were saying this? It says, many are they who say to me, there is no help for him in God. Who are those people in the, in the context here? I'll tell you what, they weren't foreign enemies. They weren't nations or kings that were in opposition to the nation of Israel, they were Israelites that were saying that to him. That's a a fact that whether it was the ones who went with Absalom or the ones that were with him, at a minimum, it was people of God's special chosen nation that were saying this. That's who was whispering into his ear in this context. Think of Isaiah 1-4, also the same context, nation of Israel. The prophet Isaiah is saying to them, alas, sinful nation... Now, how does he describe them in addition to being a sinful nation? A people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, sounds very similar to you brood of vipers that Jesus says about the Pharisees, children who are corruptors. Now, what brings about that outward expression? Well, their inward attitude. It says they have forsaken the Lord. That's how they acted that way. That's how they were characterized as a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, and children who are corruptors. That's not even the focus. The focus is they have forsaken the Lord. That's what brought it about. They have turned away backward, meaning they have turned their backs on him. That's what caused them to have that perspective. They had chosen to no longer acknowledge God in their thinking. But who were they? They weren't the pagans. They weren't the nations that were around Israel. They were the Israelites who were supposed to be set apart, peculiar, a light to the nations so that those nations could see and be attracted to the truth of Jehovah God. Now, I will say this. I don't even think it's those that were with Absalom 
that is being referred to here with, as being the many. I think it was likely those who had fled with David and those that had maintained their support for him that were saying this. Now, why do I say that? Because they would have been the ones who were around him. So if you look at the context, how they have increased who trouble me, he's already fled from Absalom. That's the context of what's going on here. Many are they who rise up against me. That's already happened. But then many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. That was the people that were supposedly on his side that most likely were saying that. Now the takeaway you could have from that observation is the spiritual attack isn't always distant and far away. That's the reminder. That's the caution there. That even those close to us, when their thinking gets messed up, they can have a hugely detrimental impact on our thinking. That's why God says, I don't want you to be influenced by those around you. I want you to be influenced by me. I don't want you to set your spiritual compass based on the guidance of people around you. I want to be the one who directs your path as you set your gaze and your focus on me, as you orient your thinking to me. Then just like a compass, I can steer you straight. You see, a compass isn't affected by people. A compass is going to read true regardless of the people around. And that's what God says. I want you to find that truth in me. Now, if we keep reading, we'll look at verses 3 and 4 here. I, I label this, my God is a waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. Now, I heard that in a song recently. I'll tell you what. Do they repeat it a few times in the song? Yeah, they repeat it a lot. If you were to go around spending the rest of tonight and the rest of next week and the rest of your life humming to yourself, my God is a way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. That's my God. I'll tell you what, you'd be light years ahead. If that's the kind of truth that we can be reminded of and get caught in our thinking from worship, music, then praise the Lord that there are those he's working through to give us those kinds of encouragement. But who needs to be the focus? That's the real problem. That's the real question here. Where does deliverance come from? Because there's a trial. There's something difficult in front of David. Something that is as difficult as anyone could imagine. His own son has turned on him and is trying to kill him. So where is help going to come from? Where is deliverance going to come from? Who needs to be the focus? Let's read verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are my shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. There's a bunch there. Who needs to be the focus? Look at these words. You, O Lord. He calls him the one. And then he says, who lifts up my head? The Lord, we see. Then we see he, he heard me. And then his holy hill. See, as David's eyes turn to the greatness of God, his fear fades into the background. We're going to see how this develops and he finds peace and he finds rest in the face of adversity because he shifts his gaze. He orients his gaze to the one who can actually help. The Lord. Who needs that encouragement? 
Who needs to be reminded of that? All of us, right? How often do we need to be reminded of that? All of the time. So we have an application here for all of us all of the time. God needs to be where we turn our gaze. He has to be the focal point when we face the circumstances of life. That's all the time for everyone, each and every moment of each and every day. Now, who is the recipient of God's unfailing faithful love? So if God is a way maker, he makes a way of rescue even in times of difficulty. Who is the recipient of that and why does it matter? Well, here we're going to see David sees this as a very personal God who's very personally interested in him and he doesn't care about everyone else who's a part of this conflict. Now, I don't mean he literally doesn't care about it, but that's not his concern or focus in this psalm. His focus is his own response to the trial that's in front of him. Many, many people were affected by this trial, not just him, but each person is responsible for his or her own personal response to the trial that they're facing. Now, look at this language. How many personal pronouns do we see here? We see me. You are a shield for me, not just a shield for in general, a shield for me. Then you have my, my glory, my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice. He heard me. A bunch of them there, right? Not one of them focused on somebody else. All of them focused on God's provision, care, concern, compassion for David in particular. Not in general, in particular. See, he's a personal God. It's called a personal walk of faith. How you're doing with your trials and your circumstances, though they can be encouraging to me, they're not going to help me that much. How I respond to the trials in my own life, that's what is of vital importance. Because it's the difference between living my life in a way that maximizes my opportunity to have intimacy and closeness with Him, to then as I'm intimate with Him, I'm walking in fellowship with Him, then I'm under the direction and the guidance and the empowerment of His Spirit, and He can actually do something with that. So it's vital that I would focus on my own response to God in my life. Now, how complete is God's provision? How complete is God's provision? See, there was a problem, there was a need. God says, I'll answer all of your needs, I'll provide all of your needs. So how complete does he do that? Not all, not some of your needs, all of your needs, Paul says in Philippians. And that's true here too, it's complete provision. We saw that in Psalm 23, we spent a lot of time on that to see God's complete care and provision for his children. I hope that's still in the back of your mind. I hope you were encouraged by that. But let's look at a few examples here. How complete was God's provision for David in his time of need? Well, he is a shield, verse 3a. You, O Lord, are a shield for me. Another place that we see that, and we're going to end up turning to it, but not this second, is Genesis 15.1. Now, in Genesis 12, God makes his first, he has the first time he speaks of his covenant promise to Abraham. But he expands on that in chapter 15. And in verse 1 of chapter 15, God speaks to Abraham and he says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, or Abram, in a vision. Now, what did God have to say to Abram in the face of things weren't turning out how God had planned immediately? 
how God had promised immediately, there was some delay in this. There was some hardship caused by Abraham trusting God and moving out by faith. He had to leave a lot behind in order to do that. There was a cost involved in trusting the Lord. And so God speaks to him and he says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now, do we need to be reminded of that? Yeah, I'm your shield. I'm your protection is what you could take away from that. God is a shield for me. There's the personal part of it again. Now, what else does God do to provide for David? It says he lifts up. He lifts up. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. See, that's an active intervention on God's part to undertake in a way that he could provide encouragement to the soul that is in despair, to actually lift up my head. Now you talk about being lifted up so that you could soar on wings of eagles. Here's an idea just a lot simpler than that, a lot more practical than that. You got the kid who is dejected in a place of defeat and they come in your direction and you lift up their chin, lift up their head. Now, I deal with that in basketball coaching commonly. A young person goes and makes a bunch of errors, doesn't have the success that they're looking for, has their teammates jabbering at them about how horrible they are because teammates are so supportive. That's not true if, you've, if, you, if you didn't pick up on that. Teammates very often are the opposite of what they should be. And so instead of lifting you up when you're struggling they actually tear you down as they run their mouth at you about how you're making so many mistakes. But in any event, that kid starts having a dejected look. Their head starts to slump down. Now, the best thing you can do for them as a coach in that moment is to call them out of the game, pull them out of the game, not to punish them for their errors, but to lift their chin up so they're looking at you now and to say, you got to shake that off. Don't worry about that. It's already done. We can't do anything about that. Take a deep breath, pull yourself together, and go do the best that you can. Do not worry about making mistakes. Those are natural. Everybody makes mistakes. Just go out there. Try to have patience. Try not to panic as much. Try to just do the best you can. And to the one who's you know, running them down, we'll talk to them later. But the point is, the only way that player is ever going to be effective at getting back into the game, getting back into the conflict, is if a coach comes along and helps them to get their chin up. Because sulking around means that they're going to be worthless to the team for the rest of the game. So it takes some intervention to come alongside of them, lift up their chin and say, hey, it's okay. Let's move forward now. Now, that's a Every application, I mean, every illustration has its limits, but it's a similar kind of a thing. Psalm 34, 18, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Now, King James Version says contrite in spirit. If you actually look up what the word contrite means, it has nothing to do with humility. It has to do with having your spirit crushed. Now, that gives a lot better emphasis as to what it's talking about when you say the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, the one whose very spirit is crushed. Can you relate to that? The Lord draws near to that person. He lifts up that person. Now that's the same word that is most often translated exalts. 
This word here for he lifts up, the same word as he exalts. Now remember this, as you lift him up in your thinking, he lifts you up. So don't get the perspective that I need to lift myself up. That's not the whole point of this. God comes along and provides in such a way that he lifts you up when you're dejected, when you're downhearted, when you're in despair. God's the one who can do that. As you what? As you look to him. Now, it's very similar to what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, when he says, Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. It's the idea that I have a need, a present need. Instead of having pride saying, I can deal with this, I'll actually humble myself and I'll cast those cares to him. See, giving things over to him and trusting him with the hard things I'm going through, that takes humility. Pride is the opposite of that that says, I don't need God in anything. I can fix my own problems. And then where does that get you? Well, nowhere. But if you will humble yourself, then you'll see your need. As you see your need, you'll see God as the provision or the solution to meet your need. He'll cast your care upon him. And when that happens, then he, his response is that he cares for you. Now, what else does God do in his complete provision? He hears. Look at verse 4. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me. He heard me. Psalm 34, 17 has a similar idea. It says, by you, I have been upheld from my birth. You are he who took me out of my mother's womb. My praise shall be continually of you. Meaning, God is the one who is doing the uplifting. God is the one who is hearing our despair and responding to that. By upholding us. He doesn't do it at just some parts or times in our life. It says he's been doing that since our birth. That God's been available and wanting and willing and able to lift us up. Because he's a God who cares. A God who cares, he hears us. 1 John five fourteen says, Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Isn't that encouraging tonight? God's a shield. He lifts up. He hears us. But then it doesn't stop there. Verse 5, it says, He sustains us. Offer the... Oh, wrong, wrong chapter. Verse 5 here of 3. I lay down and slept now, was my response. We'll get to that in a second. I awoke, but we're talking about the provision of God here, and the Lord sustained me. He sustained me. He provided everything that I need to strengthen me. There's the idea there. To hold me up to build me up. You see that in Psalm 76, 71, verse 6, it says, by you I have been, oh, that's why I had this wrong. Verse, for verse 4, when it talks about he hears us, the verse that should have gone with that is 34, 17. Psalm 34, 17 says, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. I was looking at the wrong spot there. Now, as we think about him sustaining us, a cross-reference there to look at would be Psalm 71.6, where he says, By you I have been upheld from my birth. That's the same word for sustained. Lifted up, held up, strengthened is the idea. You're built up, reinforced. And you've done that since I came out of my mother's womb. What should my response to be to that? My praise shall be continually of you. I shouldn't speak of anything else. I should be lifting you up. Now, the last thing that the Lord does in terms of his complete provision here is verse 7. It's just amazing. It just gives and gives this psalm. But verse 7, it says, he defeats the enemy. 
Verse 7, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. We'll get to that in a second. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. He defeats the enemy. He delivers us from the enemy. That's the completeness of God's provision for his children. Psalm 1848, David speaks about a similar type of thing, except for it was Saul trying to kill him then in the context of that psalm. And it says, he, God, delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. Same idea of lifting up and exalting. You have delivered me from the violent man, who is a reference to Psalm. So as we think about this so far, we have, there's a time of distress here. It's very obvious and it's very serious in David's life. Naturally, the advice we get from those around us isn't always to trust the Lord, to believe that the Lord is capable of dealing with things. But when we think about the way maker, the kind of God we have who's a miracle worker, a promise keeping, kind of a God who is a light in the darkness, that's the God that we have. And if we see him as our personal God like David did, then we can see how God undertakes as we turn to him in faith to provide all that is necessary for us to get through or endure the trial that we're going through and to do it with our head held high instead of with our head hanging down. You see, knowing this about our God, knowing what kind of God we have, it should provide confidence and rest. Let's read 5 and 6 here. Verse 5, I lay down. That was my response to crying out to the Lord, knowing that he hears me because we have confidence in that. Verse 5, that caused me then to be able to lay down and sleep. I awoke for the Lord sustained me or seeing that the Lord was the sustainer. Verse 6, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me all around. You see, has the circumstance changed? No. Circumstance is the same. They're all around. They're all around him. That hasn't changed. But his head's not hanging down anymore because he turned to his Lord in faith, knowing that his God could provide and undertake to meet the present trial that was in front of him. He went vertical. The result of that was he was able to experience an absence of fear and rest. You know what? If you're going through something hard tonight, those of you listening online, if you're going through something hard, the only way you're going to have the absence of fear and rest is to give it to the Lord, to go vertical and trust that He is capable of undertaking to provide to meet your every need, even in the face of that adversity. And that's what David realizes. That's what he speaks of here is how he could find rest. You see, God's provision is appropriated by faith here by David. Now turn to Genesis chapter 15. I want, to see, I want you to see how Abraham responded to that difficulty he was going through in trusting God with the promises that God had made to him. How, da- how Abram, just like David, two of the most famous people in the Bible, both had to be reminded of how they didn't have to have any fear because God was their provider, their shield. Now, we already read verse 1, where we said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Now, verse 2 picks up with, But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? So, Abram's still not the most mature believer ever. He's still looking at the circumstances around him, and he's saying, How is this going to work out, God? You promised me a seed that couldn't be numbered. Errors that couldn't be numbered. And let's see. 
Then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. I see a problem with you keeping your promises here, God. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir, meaning the best I have to call an heir is actually just a servant that was born into my home. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this is God's response, a reminder to him, this one shall not be your heir. Why? Because I'm a promise-keeping God. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, God did this to Abraham. Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them, meaning you know you can't. It's impossible. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So God had to remind him that I made a promise and I'm a faithful God, but it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. So now Abram had a choice to make. He could either respond in faith or he could react in his flesh. He could go vertical or he could go horizontal here. He chose to go vertical. His response was, and he, Abram, believed in the Lord. And he, God, accounted it to him for righteousness. There was a choice to be made as to how he was going to respond to that very difficult trial in his life, which was that he hadn't been able to have a child then in some ways God had made it worse by promising something that he desperately wanted but not providing it to him immediately. Can you see how that might actually be harder when somebody had come to terms with not having a child to be told you will have a child but then not have a child right away? That was a difficult child in Abram's life. He had a choice to make. Did he always get it right? No, he, he didn't. But he chose to believe the Lord when God came alongside of him and said, I'm going to lift up your chin here I'm going to remind you of my goodness and my faithfulness. Now, how will you respond to that? And the response was to believe the Lord. You see, whenever adversity strikes, we have a choice. We can turn from God or we can turn to God. Those are the two options. And they're really the only two options. You can go vertical or you can go horizontal. You can operate in dependence or you can operate in independence. Those are the choices that every story in the Bible illustrates. Mankind is consistently faced with the opportunity to either trust God or not. To depend on God or not. But see, only one of those choices provides peace and rest. And David is illustrating that here. It's only trusting God that can result in us having God's rest and God's peace. That's what a faith rest life is all about. That's what we talk about when we say God wants us to have a faith rest life. You see, David's mentality in the face of his trial, which was different than Abram's and is different than yours, it was to trust God. And you can see that demonstrated in his response. Look what he says. I cried to the Lord. That was my reaction to this difficult circumstance that I was in. Verse 4. I cried to the Lord. And then what happened? After I did that, I gave it to the Lord. I casted my cares on Him. And then what happened? I lay down and slept in verse 5. Now take what you're going through right now. There's two parts to this. If you want to have rest and peace, you're going to have to truly give it to the Lord. So cry out to the Lord. Do it literally. Do it figuratively. But cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to get me through this. And then the question is, do you really trust that? Are you really believing that or not? If you are, then you're going to lay down and rest. And you're going to say, I've separated myself from this, knowing that ultimately, Lord, you're going to be, have to be the one who undertakes. 
And if you were to turn to Psalm 127, verse 2, it has this awesome way that it ends. It says, He gives His beloved sleep. You could look at Psalm 4, which says, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep for you, O Lord. Makest me to lie down in safety or something like that. We'll get to that soon. That's why I didn't go into it tonight. He gives His beloved sleep. That's the only way you're ever going to experience rest is through trusting the Lord. And David provides us with an excellent example here. You see, when God is front and center, the size or the type of the adversity, it's irrelevant. David's adversity that he was facing was great. It was many in number, but he didn't matter because after crying out to the Lord, he actually gave it to the Lord. And then he laid down and was able to sleep. See verse 6. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. David's not concerned anymore by the size of the enemy, by the size of the conflict or the circumstance in front of him because he has his eyes focused on his God who is greater than any of that. Now we see in verse 7, we have it again here where he talks about crying out to the Lord. That's the solution to any trial or circumstance you're going through. But see how he says this here in verse 7. He says, Arise, O Lord. Now look at the exclamation point here. At least New King James has it there. I'm not saying the punctuation is inspired, but he says, Save me, O my God. That's all he says. It's not this long and eloquent speech that he gives to God. His prayer isn't recorded as something theologically weighty and heavy or spiritually mature. His cry to the Lord is simple. Save me, O my God. And it actually appears that David's prayer here is audible. You can take that from a combination of, I cried to the Lord with my voice. And then here he says, as I cried with my voice, what did I cry? Save me, O my God. I read once, if your mind wanders in prayer, try praying aloud, out loud. There's something perhaps that will be a nice change of pace for that. Actually talking to God audibly. I'm not saying there's anything mystical about it or anything more spiritual about it than anything else. I'm just suggesting that might be a good idea. Sometimes when you're trying to pray in the quiet of your mind, it's easy for things to come get in the way. Sometimes if you're talking out loud, you might stay, stay sort of focused on that a little bit more. Just a thought, I read it somewhere. Maybe it would help you. But this prayer isn't theologically deep and complex. It's simple. I have a problem. I'm going to bring it to you, Lord, and I'm going to ask you for help. It reminds me of a song that says, it's called Cry Out to Jesus is the name of the song, but it says, when you're lonely and it feels like the whole world is falling on you. Is that what David felt right here? Very similar. It says the solution to that is you just reach out. You just cry out to Jesus. Cry to Jesus is what that song says. You tell me that's not biblical? It's right here in front of you. When you feel like the whole world is crashing down on you, there's only one response to that. That's to cry out to the Lord. That's to cast your cares on the Lord. That's to go vertical with your thinking. And it's right here in this psalm. Now, what's the final conclusion, takeaway? We're running out of time here. Verse 8. So God provides the victory. We already touched on that in terms of God's provision. He defeats the enemy. And he did that with Absalom too, though not the way David wanted Absalom ultimately was killed, but the revolution was put down. David returned to power. But 
David, it's, it hasn't happened yet, but David's convinced it's going to happen because God can be trusted. He says, you have struck down all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Is how verse 7 ends. He knows that will happen, and it did happen here. Verse 8, what's the conclusion? What's the concluding mentality that should come from all of this consideration? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Now, that's in the context of the promises that God had made to David specifically, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. There's probably a lot there in that second line about your blessing is upon your people, plural, not just David in particular, because God had said, he had said, I'll bless those that bless you, I'll curse those that curse you. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you don't, I will punish you or discipline you. There is a covenantal context there that doesn't apply to our conversation here tonight, but God's blessing is definitely on us too. He has blessed us in so many different ways in our lives, and it all, all the glory and all the honor should go back to him. You see, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's imperative to remember to whom the victory and thus all glory belong. The victory doesn't belong to us. Your part in this is the crying out to the Lord, turning to Him in faith, faith going vertically. But the victory, the salvation, belongs to the Lord. So who should get the credit and the glory in that? Well, God should get the glory in that. So why when... God is the one who undertakes to provide rescue and deliverance in our lives, do we almost instantly then forget about Him? The moment we're rescued from the fire, our flesh is prone to weasel itself in there, right? Because why? The feet aren't in the flame anymore. It was the flame that gave us no other choice but to either continue to be burnt up and suffering or remember that we need to turn to the Lord. God uses those trials in our lives because we would never think about Him otherwise. Now, that's an over-exaggeration. I understand that. I'm just saying we're so fickle that if everything was going hunky-dory all the time, nobody would need the Lord. Now, can a mature believer have everything going great and still be giving God the glory, walking in fellowship, having intimacy with Him? Yes, Is that possible? Yes. Should we need trials to get our thinking back on the Lord? No. I hope that you've gotten to that place. But if there are still trials, circumstances, difficulties in your life, I would argue or submit that it's because you need reminding. That unless you're feeling hopeless and helpless and seeing that without you I can do nothing, your mind is naturally going to wander to a place of independence from God not dependence. Your mind is naturally going to be focused on self instead of focusing on your Savior. It's the hard things in life that get us to where we need to be, where our minds get back to Him. You see, God is for us, and nothing can stand against us. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's sort of the way that David is ending this psalm. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's guaranteed because there's nothing bigger than God. There's no enemy that's bigger than God. There's no trial that's bigger than God. There's no circumstance that's bigger than God. No matter how it got brought about, whatever caused it, who cares? There's many different causes, self-inflicted trials. The effects of the sin-cursed world around us. Lots of different reasons why there's trials and difficulties in our lives, but that's not the issue. The issue is that none of it's too big for him. And God wants to use it for our benefit. 
you lift up my head. You see, if God could deliver, if God could deliver David from the circumstances he faced, which were significant in number, this was a desperate situation. He certainly can deliver you. If God could lift up David's head in a time of difficulty, he can lift your head up too. The question is, will you trust him? Will you leave the fighting to him? Will you cry out to him? You don't lift up your own head. You don't shield yourself. You don't sustain yourself. You don't provide victory for yourself. But when you cry out to him, the promise is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time we could spend in Psalm 3. Pray that it would have been profitable to us, that it would have been encouraging, it would have been a good, necessary, and needed reminder that we would allow you to take that truth, keep it on the forefront of our thinking so we could then, by your grace and through the power of your spirit, allow those applications to be made in our lives so that we could actually have a faith rest life that is characterized by absolute dependence on you and keeping our eyes vertical and off of the circumstances around us. In Jesus' name, amen.